welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. My name is Joe Persh. It's my honor to serve as uh, senior pastor here at Valley Forth and uh, uh, grateful to celebrate yet another Good Friday in my Christian life of decades now. Maybe it's uh, a newer experience for you, but the story never changes. And every time I contemplate it in Scripture, even though I've preached on it for many years, the wonder only deepens about what Jesus has done for us. So we're going to look into Good Friday tonight, and uh, whether you've known Christ and walked with him a long time, or whether you're newer to the faith, or maybe even exploring the faith, we're going to take a look at Good Friday tonight and, again, tell the, the wonderful story of it in the midst of the confusion that people have about Good Friday. You're probably aware of the fact that... Uh, Though it is called Good Friday by those who are uh, believers in the Christian tradition, uh, that's a a confusing title to to the the world that beholds the events that history say took place on Good Friday. They were anything but good events. It was a terrible day of suffering and bloody death and injustice from the human side of things. It was terrible in that sense, yet wonderful in terms of what God himself did on that terrible but wonderful Good Friday. It was terrible in the sense that God punished sin. There was a tremendous amount of divine justice poured out on Jesus, but it was wonderful to us because when it was all done, as was sung about tonight, the way to heaven was opened for anyone who would trust in what Jesus had achieved. So in that sense, it is a wonderful thing to behold. Now, it has to do with the contest over human evil. And human evil is something that's contested today. The vast majority of people in the west, western part of the world have come to believe that man is not evil, that man is fundamentally good, and that with the right environment and the right uh, teaching and the right opportunity and the right... Uh, improving of our whole world system, man will simply blossom into what we know is good within him and all the potential that lays before him. But that's undergoing a real conflict these days because the events that man keeps creating put the lie to the idea that people are fundamentally good. They're not. Events are transpiring that are making people once again confront the reality that human beings are capable of unspeakable evil. I give you the mass graves in Ukraine. But I remind you that atrocities in similar ways were, can, have been committed by both sides in that conflict. So this is not a problem of wickedness or evil that's part of one culture or one nation. You know that it's basically arising in all human hearts. 
We see it just in, in a stunning way. I've read so much of the, the comments of people on social media and other things that looked at the mass graves and the, the tremendous atrocities committed and person after person put down, this is not 1942, this is 2022. And they're saying, has, haven't we moved on? Well, history has moved on. The darkness of man's heart hasn't. In fact, Romans 1 tells us that it will find new, new depths the longer God allows it to exist. No, the lawlessness that we see all around us in our supposedly ordered society, the kind of brutality that we've seen in the Ukraine just remind us of the fact that man is fundamentally evil. Now the Bible has relayed this since the inception of the scriptures. God gives us a moral algebra. He tells us what the moral nature of the human experience is. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9 said, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's the analysis, the MRI of the human heart from the Bible. There is no inherent goodness in man, and there's not a trajectory toward goodness. His heart is deceitful. That's the deception that man is fundamentally good. That's a wicked deception, and it leads us into all kinds of depravity. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it, Jeremiah said. We cannot even come to understand the depths of what the human heart is capable of. We cannot know it in all of its darkness. God does. So there is a fundamental problem. Human beings are born in sin and they live out their sin. Second part of the moral algebra, second factor, if you will, is that God himself will not tolerate sin because he's a holy and perfect and just God. Habakkuk, another prophet, said said of God, thine eyes are too pure to look upon evil. And so we've got some disturbing calculus coming forward. Factor A, the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked, and all of his actions become so. Factor B, God is holy and pure and just, and he will not tolerate evil. Oh, he will only punish it, and he must do that to maintain his perfect nature and to keep the moral balance in the universe. Factor three, Romans 1 in the New Testament says that the wrath of God has now been revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of man. That means God is on the move in human experience and he is calculating the, the, the wickedness of man and he's calculating wrath equal to it and one day that day is coming where his wrath is going to be revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. The word all means your life and mine as well as more heinous uh, people that we see out in the human story. All of us face the wrath of God. That's the moral algebra of the scripture. There's a moral collision coming, and it will result in eternal judgment. I'd be an unfaithful pastor if I did not tell you the the plain truth of the Scripture about the moral state of our world and our lives. But facing that moral collision comes Good Friday when there was a moral intervention, when God sent His only begotten Son to bear the wrath for us. And we're going to look into the beauty and the wonder of that. That's what makes it a Good Friday. On Good Friday, the wrath did fall. It fell upon the Son, and the way was opened, and the way to eternity and acceptance in the presence of that perfect holy God who cannot behold sin was made possible for you if you trust Christ. 
So that was the achievement of Good Friday. It solved this terrible moral algebra. It, it stopped this moral collision that's coming with a moral intervention that you can take advantage of by believing in Christ. Now, as we go to Matthew chapter 27, as our text tonight, I want to show you how two miracles on Good Friday tell that story. Tell the story of God's intervention, of the wrath falling so it doesn't have to fall on you, and the way opening into the presence of a holy God just for you. There are two miracles that demonstrate this marvelous achievement. Matthew 27 is one of the accounts of the crucifixion, of course. And we're going to focus on Matthew 27, verses 45 uh, down to 51. So let me read to you the word of God. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Bear in mind, Christ had been on the cross for three hours already. Then the narrative comes in the middle of the, 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 the experience itself. This is about noon, and I'll explain that. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is in, in, in Hebrew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. This is the word of God. And in it is a description of two miracles that covered the hours that that in which the wrath of God fell, and they illustrate the two truths that I've described to you. The wrath fell for you, and the way was open for you. Let's take a look at these together. There was a darkness at noon, and then there was a veil or a curtain torn. The darkness at noon is revealed in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. You can read that quickly and not understand the importance of what it's describing there. This was, it turned out, a momentous event recorded in history. What are the ninth hour and sixth hour terminology? Well, in the, the way they kept time in the Roman system... The day uh, began at 6 a.m. That was the first hour. 9 a.m. was the third hour. Noon was the sixth hour. And 3 p.m. was the ninth hour. Now, if you understand that, it means that Jesus had now been on the cross for several hours. And at the sixth hour, that would have been the peak of noon, the highest point of the sun in the sky, the greatest brightness of the day. At that very point, there was darkness over all the land. It fell. It fell suddenly and deeply. And that darkness remained, look at this, over all the land until the ninth hour. What's the ninth hour? Three hours later. So from noon to three in the afternoon, pitch dark settled over Calvary and over the entire region in which this happened. 
This was a remarkable event. This was a miraculous event. Notice certain things about the darkness. It was pointed out by eyewitnesses that it happened precisely at noon as the sixth hour came. Darkness fell. It was sudden. Darkness, there, it simply says there was darkness. It didn't say darkness approached. It didn't say it became a bit uh, dim or uh, somewhat some sense of twilight moved in. It said darkness came. It was sudden. Notice also it was deep darkness. It wasn't, a sh- they, the writer didn't say a shadow came over the Mount of Calvary in the, the time of Christ's greatest suffering. It didn't say the clouds covered the scene. No, it was darkness. The Greek word is skatos, which meant deep darkness, hard to see your hand darkness. So it was sudden, it was deep, and it was wide. It says over all the land. It wasn't just on that mountain of crucifixion. It was over that entire region. Everyone in Jerusalem suddenly had darkness upon them, walking down a street. One moment you're looking at the sun glinting through the corner. The next moment darkness is upon you. People were reaching for, for balance, and things were falling over because they, they, they stumbled in there as they walked. Houses were darkened. The palace of Pilate was darkened, where Pilate's wife had warned him some hours before, have nothing to do with betraying this man. You are betraying innocent blood. The palace of Pilate was darkened. The Roman praetorium where the guards uh, were quartered was darkened. The temple was darkened. The quarters of the Pharisees who had condemned and conspired against Jesus were all darkened. And the region out beyond the walls of Jerusalem, going out through Judea and farther than that, it suddenly came under this strange darkness. It was sudden, it was deep, it was wide, and it was long, three solid hours. Now do you get a sense for what God had done? This is a true miracle. This wasn't an eclipse. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, because the Bible is not the only place that describes this event at the crucifixion of Jesus. There are sources in secular Roman history that describe it. This is astounding. When I was a a younger skeptic, it was sources and things like this that made me realize that the lie that I'd believed for years, that Christianity was a created religious idea put together by people who wanted to create a power structure centuries after Christ might have supposedly lived. It was all concocted out of whole cloth by people centuries after the life of Jesus, and they put it in a false book that I thought the Bible was. Oh, no. When I began to see that there were sources outside the Bible that confirmed the very events the Bible talked about, my eyes began to open, and I had to admit I'd been dishonest about the reliability of Christ and the Bible. And this is an example of that. In Roman history, there were uh, several accounts of this. There was a historian named Tertullian at the beginning of the 3rd century now, pardon me, let me go back in my, my notes. There are several, several sources. The earliest was a, a Roman historian named Thallus who wrote in A.D. 52. Why is that significant? Because that's less than 20 years after the crucifixion event. There were plenty of people around who could deny his claim, but he wrote and affirmed this supernatural darkness that came over that region. 
Now, he wrote his record, and then in his record, in his, it's called his third book of histories, he explained it away as an eclipse of the sun. Now, this is significant. It means that Romans at that time accepted the fact of Christ's death, accepted where it happened outside Jerusalem, when it happened, and they accepted the fact that there was this unexplainable wall of darkness that fell over the whole region at that time. So Thallus recorded it as an historical fact, and then he had to come up with an explanation as, as to why this happened. He didn't want to confirm what the Bible writers had said, that this was an act of God, and so he called it an eclipse. But the critics of his writing soon pointed out that this happened on the eve of pa- on Passover. And in the range of Passover, the, the placement of the sun and moon make it impossible for an eclipse to have occurred at that point in that occasion. So his argument was seen to be vacant, but for centuries now, people have had to admit, and listen, Thallus admitted Jesus died, admitted where he died, admitted how he died, crucifixion, and admitted this falling wall of darkness. It's fascinating. In fact, Tertullian, who I referred to just a bit ago, was a later historian in the beginning of the third century, And Lucian, another historian, stated that up until the the mid-300s, there was actually a document in the National Archives in Rome. The National Archives in Rome is like our Library of Congress, where you could see the Declaration of Independence. It was the hall of records for everything significant in the Roman Empire. And Tertullian and Lucian tell us that up until the middle 300s, there was a document in the archives in Rome that affirmed the existence of a supernatural darkness prevailing over Judea at that time. Quite remarkable, don't you think? There was a Greek historian the first century Phlegon of Tralles, who said, in fact, that this darkness covered the land, quote, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, end of quote. You wonder what year that was? A.D. 33. Is that a familiar year to you? It's the year that the majority of scholars believe the crucifixion of Jesus took place at Passover. So I look at all that and I point out the fact that God did something to punctuate the passion of his son, didn't he? This was no eclipse. This was a fundamental miracle that altered the physics of the moment. Now let me answer two things under this. First of all, why did this happen? Why it happened? Well, In my mind, God was clearly doing something. He created a miracle around those hours of suffering that his son went through. The why the miracle of darkness? Some people say, well, God did that because he was so saddened over the death of his son that he didn't want other people to see it. He didn't want the crowds to see it. He wanted to shadow his son's suffering. That's romantic and sentimental, but it's really not biblical. The suffering of the Son was intended by God the Father, agreed to by God the Son before the foundation of the world. It was a grief to the Father's heart, but no, it achieved the salvation of his people. So, no, this wasn't a sentimental hiding of of the suffering of the Son. You see, darkness in the Scripture has a very key meaning. According to the prophet Amos and 
in, 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 in this. The fifth chapter of his book and many other places, darkness is a symbol of judgment. The judgment falling upon sin. The wrath of God coming. And I believe that the darkness came because God symbolized what was going on in those terrible three hours from noon to three in the afternoon. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ for our sin. He became sin for us in that darkness. And it was a transaction occurring between a holy father and the son that became sin for us. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ. And it was poured out until there was no more wrath to pour. This is why, as you look at your text, Jesus cried out at the end of this time of darkness and about the ninth hour after all the suffering had been undergone and the the wrath of God had fallen on Christ, it seemed that the judgment had been sufficient and Christ calls out and perhaps at the height of it as as it's at its most painful point for him, look at verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the forsaking of the son by the father was the most powerful event in in universal history when it came to the punishment of sin. Not only was the wrath of God poured out upon Jesus for he became sin for us, but the father turned his back on God the son. How, How that could happen in the midst of the Trinity, no one knows. But at the height of it, perhaps the most difficult and painful part of it for the son was for that for the first time in forever, God the father turned his back on the son as the son represented my sin and yours. And Jesus cries out under the pain of that abandonment. And so it happened. I'll give you a simple sentence. The Father's judgment fell on him. That's why it happened. The Father's judgment fell on him. Of course it was covered in darkness because it meant judgment. Now what does it mean? What does it mean for you tonight if you're considering Christ, but you've struggled with the whole idea of a God who's morally just and how he would handle your sin? Maybe you're coming tonight knowing you need a Savior, but knowing there's nobody that can take the penalty for what you've done but you. Oh, my friend, this means for you that the Father's judgment will not fall on you. You see, it fell on him so that it will not fall on you. This is a fundamental but beautiful teaching of the Christian gospel. If you trust in what Christ did, he became the sacrifice you would have had to have been. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a great passage. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin. Only one person on the planet knew no sin. That was Jesus. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. What a mighty miracle. You think the crucifixion was a miracle? That was a miracle in space and time. Oh, your righteousness and your justification is a miracle that that altered all the rules of eternal justice and made you clean before God. Jesus accomplished the way for that to happen. The darkness at noon. Darkness represented judgment it happened because the father's judgment fell on him and it means for you that the father's judgment will not fall on you if you trust jesus
That was the first miracle. Darkness at noon. The second is recorded later in our text. Go down to verse 51. As the ninth hour crested, we know Jesus cried out in verse 46, calling out and calling the Father God. By the way, that was the only time Jesus ever called him God in his, in his life. Always had before it had been Father. We know that's because he was separated. But now the wrath has been paid. The ninth hour has crested. And in verse 50 it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. So there's two cries. The cry of ultimate separation under the pinnacle of the wrath of God in verse 46. But then there's another cry in verse 50. This is a different cry. The first cry was a cry of suffering and loss. This cry is a cry of victory. How do I know? What did Jesus say? Mark didn't record it here. John did in his gospel in John 19.30. And the cry of Jesus was, it is finished. And the Greek word here says he, he shouted it out. He shrieked it out to the universe. It is finished. It was a cry of victory and accomplishment. And in verse 50, he cries out and then he yields up his spirit. And all of this, I believe, happens as, as the darkness begins to lift. Things have suddenly changed because a great transaction has occurred. A great payment's been made. Jesus cries out, now in victory, it is finished. And then he yields up his spirit, Mark says. And we look at that, we say, okay, he died like any other person died. No, no, no. No human being has or ever will be able to yield up their own spirit. We don't decide to die. We don't die in a moment. We don't command our death. God does. The Bible says he puts breath into us and he takes it from us. Jesus died like no other human being ever has. He yielded up his spirit. He superintended the moment his physical death occurred. Many people look at the crucifixion of Christ at this time of year and they watch movies about it and they, they see how, how much it's graphically depicted and the bloodletting and the pain and the whipping and the scourging and the, the agonies of the cross and they think that Jesus finally died when, there was, when he could take no more. Isn't that true in the, in the minds of so many? Jesus finally died when he could take no more pain, like any human would die, and that's precisely incorrect. Jesus died not because he couldn't take anymore, but because there was nothing more to take. The wrath had been tasted. The separation had been experienced. The payment had been made. All the wrath had been tasted. It had been exhausted on him, poured out on him. There was nothing left to take. And so he gave up his spirit. He superintended his own physical death because the work was done. That's how magnificent our Lord is. The Greek says he sent his spirit away. And he commanded the moment of his death. Now look what happens next. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Same moment. A second miracle. The darkness was lifting. Perhaps it had already suddenly just moved back into late afternoon sunlight. 
And Jesus calls out, gives up his spirit. The wrath taking was over. He cries out, it's finished. The darkness lifts, and this miracle now occurs. This is something that many don't understand. Let me explain a little bit about it. It says, and behold, the curtain of the temple. Other older translations you might have say the veil in the temple. What's this all about? The temple in Jerusalem, not very far away from the hill where Christ had cried out, it is finished, was made up of two different areas. And and there was the holy place where the priests could come in and out and they would offer incense and and, uh, prayers to the Lord. But there was a place called the Holy of Holies. You're familiar with it? The Holy of Holies. And that was a place that was blocked off by a curtain. The curtain stood a little higher than the height of this room and about 30 to 40 feet wide. It hung from the very top in one piece. It didn't have any, any break in it, no sections to it. It was all woven, one piece, It weighed hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand or two. Because Josephus, the Greek, the Jewish historian at the time, said that it was woven so tightly that the Mishnah, the Hebrew uh, source at that time, said it was the width of a man's hand. The veil in the temple that stood as high as this ceiling and almost as wide as this platform separated the Holy of Holies from everyone else, from all the rest of the temple and from any human being with this curtain that was hung from the top of it, woven solid like the width of a man's hand. Now, why was that there? It was there to show that because of the moral algebra of the universe, that the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful, he lives in sin, and he is marked by sin, but God's eyes cannot look upon sin. The Holy of Holies was the place in which the Ark of the Covenant was placed and in which the presence of God would come and dwell. That's where the Holy Presence was, and the veil there was there, the curtain was there to show that no human being could ever enter ever enter into the Holy Presence. Do you see the imagery? There was only one time in the Jewish year when any human being could step into the Holy of Holies and survive. That was the Day of Atonement where the high priest of Israel would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a sacrifice and he would He would splash that blood on what's known as the mercy seat, which was the golden top of the Ark of the Covenant. That represented the holy presence of God, and the blood splashed on the top of that mercy seat would allow God to overlook and forgive the sins of Israel for another year. The priest only was allowed. He didn't push his way through because, like I said, it was a solid piece. He had to walk around it. He alone. You see, the curtain was a constant reminder every year of atone, every day of atonement for every year of Israel's existence. They gathered outside. 
by the thousands in the temple courtyard. They watched the sacrifice taken by the high priest. They watched the blood poured into the receptacles, a little, a little bowl that he had. They watched him anxiously as he got, walked up the steps and the doors opened and the inner place of the holy place was seen for a scant moment. And they watched and waited for him to go into the holy of holies. And they waited to see if he would come out because he was in the holy, holy presence of God. And every year when he came back out of the Holy of Holies, the, bin, the basin of blood would be empty and atonement would have been made. And they all knew that they were just as separated from this holy God, but he'd made a way, made a way for them to continue with him until a true Lamb of God was going to come whose blood would be perfect forever. Well, that Lamb of God died on that hill called Calvary. And when that Lamb of God cried out, it is finished, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It was torn from top to bottom by the hand of a holy God. It was torn in two totally, not just separated a bit, because God wanted it to, to tell the world that all the separation between a holy God and sinful man has been made nothing by the blood of the Lamb. It's also interesting, historians tell us, that the death of Jesus at 3 p.m. on Calvary happened at the same time that the Passover sacrifice of the Lamb in the courtyard of the temple happened. So all of Israel was gathered around that, that temple, those that could get there. What must have happened when the priests came running out of the holy place, crying, the veil is torn, the veil is torn, the veil is torn. They had no explanation Historical tradition says they passed a rumor around that a vandal had done it. But oh, we know better. So two questions as I bring this to a close. Why it happened? Why did this happen? Why did God create this miracle around this moment? Why the miracle of the, the torn curtain, the veil parted, torn in two? Simple answer is it's a symbol that the perfect sacrifice had been made that day. The perfect sacrifice, the ultimate atonement. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. When Jesus Christ ascended and walked into the, into the heavenly throne room, he came bearing his blood. He came with the marks of his sacrifice. He appeared as our great high priest. No earthly high priest needed anymore. And he entered once for all into the holy place of God's holy presence. And he said, Father, you in your holiness can now receive these in their ugliness because of my blood. I've done it once and I've done it for all. 
and I've secured an eternal redemption. Why did that miracle happen? Because God wanted you to know that the perfect sacrifice had been made for you on Calvary that day. Lastly, what it means for you. It means that you can now be welcome in God's presence. You can. I can. The most unimaginable war criminal can. Because you see, that day the moral algebra of the universe was solved. The wicked heart of man facing the perfect nature of God and an eternal judgment between the two. All of that was solved at Calvary. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 4.16 puts it this way. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That was written to people that wondered, do I still need to keep the law? Do I still need to wait for an earthly priest to walk behind a curtain and sprinkle some blood for me? How do I approach this holy God? And he wrote to those Hebrews. He said, now we can come with confidence. Confidence in what? Confidence in the fact that the perfect sacrifice has already been made. And I've trusted in that sacrifice if I'm a believer. And now I can come to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace. What mercy and grace? Salvation. (laughs) And now that I walk with him, mercy and grace for every moment of need in my Christian life. I'm welcome in the presence of God. You see, this is why it's a good Friday. That's why it's a good Friday. So my dear friend, whether you're a Christ follower or whether you're not yet, tonight I want to urge you to take a long look at Calvary. Take a long look at what happened there The agony there was of the just for the unjust, and it was for you. The goodness of Good Friday. Christian, how do you respond? Well, I urge you to adore him more deeply, no matter what you go through for him. If you're not yet Christian, call on him. You say, how do I take advantage of this marvelous peace offering from God? Well, Romans chapter 10 Verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him tonight. See your sin for what it is and the Savior for who he is. Turn from sin. Come to him. Accept his sacrifice.